Welcome to the Startup Competitors Podcast, where we talk with early stage entrepreneurs to understand what information they use to inform product roadmap, strategy, and market differentiation. Welcome to the podcast. Today we have Ian Hamilton, who's the CEO of Atlas Energy Systems. Ian, welcome. Awesome. Thank you, Michael. Uh, and thanks for having me on the podcast today. Yes, uh, as Michael introduced, uh, I am uh, CEO of my startup company, uh, Atlas Energy Systems. We are an early stage uh, energy technology company. We're playing around with the idea of calling it like industrial hard tech. Basically, what we do um, is we are engineering, designing, and, and working with manufacturers to make uh, technology that directly converts heat into electricity with no moving parts. The core technology is actually called thermionic energy conversion. It was developed uh, very heavily in the 1950s, 60s, 70s, and 80s by NASA and the Soviet Union. It was actually flown in two operational nuclear reactors in space by the Soviet Union. The core advantage of this was that there are no moving parts, uh, so it can survive the G-forces of uh, liftoff and re-entry. It's incredibly robust and actually fairly efficient um, when compared to some other similar technologies around uh, 10 to 15 percent, some models actually breaking the 20 percent mark. Luckily for us as the startup company here, um, one of the big things back in the day was that the technology itself was not economically viable, even though it was physically viable. So a lot of your primary designs were, uh, they had the budget of NASA and were part of an actual nuclear reactor. Um, so we're talking precision ma machined tungsten tubes and things like that, even basic prototypes costing hundreds of thousands of dollars. So where we come in uh, as a company uh, and where I got my start, I have a background in nuclear engineering and material science, both from Purdue University, where I learned about this technology and thought, hey, this, this works in general. Why don't we try and make it manufacturable. So where we come in is basically redesigning the core physics uh, that's been proven and, and we know uh, the core materials to use, but how do you redesign it into a form factor that we can make thousands at a time, basically for $100 each instead of hundreds of thousands of dollars each. So that's our current basis for, for the core technology. And, and where we're applying this to is actually in uh, remote power generation in the oil and gas industry, uh, where we've gotten a lot of interest from customers. But this is simply just kind of the lowest hanging fruit for our uh, for our entry market. The core technology itself is actually really interesting in that it's agnostic to the type of heat source that you use. So uh, the technology, like I uh, said before, has actually been used in nuclear systems, combustion-fired systems, and even concentrated solar power as well, um, all tested and, and built there. So uh, it's actually more of a platform. Uh, and we actually have a very large total addressable market that we could hit as we move forward. But like I said, we are, are pretty focused on our entry markets and uh, have our customer basis uh, set up and our go-to-market strategy for the oil and gas industry, which is where we're deploying the technology first. Killer pitch. And you are the first nuclear engineer I believe we've had on the podcast. So welcome. Let's go to current status. Paint a picture of uh, where you and the team are on the bell curve of outcomes. Are you still 
two folks in a garage? Are you have a, a full team of 50 people rocking and rolling? Where are you at? Any, any vanity metrics you can share at all? We are slightly further along than in the garage. We have our own manufacturing space and, and office space. Uh, we're currently based out of Romeoville, Illinois, but we're actually looking to relocate the company for other reasons uh, up to the Pacific Northwest. Um, there's currently four of us. Uh, I started the company as an undergrad um, at Purdue University uh, in material science. Uh, it showed some merit with the concept and got my master's degree in nuclear engineering there as well. Got into the Argonne National Lab chain reaction innovations program, which is what brought me up to Lamont, Illinois, where basically we got uh, almost a million dollars from the Department of Energy to prove out some of our from some of our concepts uh, for the thermionics uh, and where I brought on my first employee, uh, Nasarg Patel, who has a master's in nuclear engineering as well. We basically proved out the technology as, uh, as much as we could with a, a demonstration and a prototype kind of just to show the operation. The whole point of the Argon program that we were in was specifically to kind of get you over that valley of death or at least help with it. It did that a little bit, um, at least to the point where we are starting our fundraising, our seed round of actually equity-based fundraising. And we, uh, to do that, brought on a CFO, uh, Scott Noble, who's got an MBA from Notre Dame. And then uh, to help out more with the technical side, we've got a research professor, at Purdue University, uh, Kazuaki Yazawa. Um, it's an expert in thermal uh, energy management and power generation. So um, that was the team. We kind of set all that up around June, July-ish. And we've been working on our current seed round of fundraising for the, about the past six months now. We are uh, coming in and closing the first tranche of that, um, about the first half of our $1.1 million uh, raise. Uh, we have a lead investor, Vision Tech Partners, based out of Indianapolis, Indiana, that set the terms uh, with a $4 million pre-money valuation. And so you can do the math on, on how much equity that takes and whatnot. So we are getting ready to close our basically the first half of it, um, but we are still looking for investment on essentially the second half of the round. Um, so that's that's where we're at financially uh, and with the team. The technology uh, is always an interesting question. Uh, like I said, we've done some non-trivial uh, experimentation and development, uh, design and engineering on our own. But at the end of the day, uh, all we've really done is kind of proven out um, a new design or a manufacturing process with some of our partners. Our budget on that has only been um, maybe $200,000. So actually, we we haven't had too much resources uh, for technology development there. But one of the interesting things that we get to do is uh, take advantage of the basically four decades worth of government funding that went into thermionics by some estimates over $100 million worth of development. So we are at, uh, if you're familiar with the technology readiness levels, we personally at a comp as the company are probably around three or four, um, but the core technology itself has actually, like I said, been, been flown in space in operational nuclear reactors. And that's closer to six, seven, um, maybe even eight. Uh, so we're, we're really trying to leverage a lot of the um, history um, and the core technology there so that we don't have to raise $100 million ourselves for product development or anything like that. We get to take advantage of a lot of the, the prior uh, research and history of the, the core technology itself. All right. I have so many questions before we go into the competition stuff. Uh, just 
just about the the path that you've been on. First, I feel like I should make the quick disclaimer. This is not an offer to invest. No solicitation is being made of our listeners to invest. But tell me, like, so when I think of so that you, that time that you spent working on the proof of concept at the, what lab was that? Uh, Argonne National Lab um, up here in uh, Lamont, Illinois. Okay, perfect. So when you were working at Argonne National Lab doing that proof of concept, what what does that look like for something like this? And and what does success mean? Is it is it just that you can like you you built a physical piece of hardware that converts heat into energy in the way that you want it and, and then you just it's around a high fives and you go crack some beers, or are you showing that to somebody for commercialization? Are you leveraging that for patents? I am, this is so different than software. I'm fascinated at like, how does that all work? What, how, what were you trying to accomplish in there? And then what did success look like? Yeah. Um, uh, and that's, that's a great question. And, and basically the, your, uh, your first part is, is essentially, uh, what we were going for. So there is, and some of your listeners might be able to, to look it up. Um, if you just go to YouTube and look up thermionic energy conversion, there's a black and white YouTube video of, from GE research from the 1960s, where he basically took a blowtorch onto a thermionic energy converter and generated enough power to do a, a fan. That was the last probably working combustion-fired thermionic converter in from 1960. So our main goal was to one, get back to that place and, and rebuild uh, an operational device. And then two, use what we learn in that building of the device to design something that's going to be mass manufacturable and specifically the, the process of doing so. We were actually the first people to build a standalone uh, combustion-fired uh, thermionic energy converter to, to produce net positive power, very small amount of power, only a couple milliwatts, uh, only enough to, to light up like a LED light bulb or whatnot. But we were the first people to do anything like that. And uh, as far as we can tell, over... Um, um, like 50 years. That was kind of our, our first step, our big milestone. It's, we've got a video of it. It um, uh, looks very large and, and expensive uh, because it was. And so our, <laughs> our uh, next step was, okay, well, how do we take this core design and, and turn it into something much smaller and simpler so that we can actually manufacture it? And, and one of the big problems with all of this is that the core technology operates using a hermetically sealed cavity that has to have metal bonded to ceramic, which have much different coefficients of thermal expansion, and this device is going to be operating at high temperature. So one, that is a huge engineering problem and task that we've, we've been working on for, for our design, and uh, that's kind of the first thing that we solved uh, for our manufacturing process and our designs. The second thing was that the active ingredient on the inside of this hermetically sealed device is cesium metal, and it adds uh, beneficial properties to the electrodes uh, as well as allowing the electrons tr to traverse through it from one side to the other side. And basically, uh, that's good and all, but cesium is highly reactive to oxygen, so you can only do this under high vacuum. So this poses a very interesting 
engineering uh, manufacturing process where you have to assemble this entire device and technology without it ever touching oxygen, all the way from like cracking open the glass cesium vial uh, that you can order online to actually getting it into a high temperature vacuum brazing oven. And you you did this all while you're at the lab? Like, so you guys did this manually and then later you have to develop a manufacturing process to do this at scale? Yes, basically. So we, um, yeah, we started out uh, developing this at the lab with some of their partners there. Uh, it was a great program. Uh, we, we loved the supports. However, one of the big takeaways from it is that it's a government-run institution, um, a lot of paperwork and bureaucracy. So developing a quick experiment or something to run very quickly was not exactly a, a, a huge option. So actually, we took all of our development off-site um, around 10 minutes down the road and wrote Romeoville, uh, Romeoville, Illinois, uh, where we basically built our own uh, manufacturing facility. We got mini CNC machines and built our own vacuum brazing oven. So we were able to develop this process, basically, like you said, manually, just one or two um, things at a time. Uh, and then we all we're doing is partnering with a, a manufacturing partner that just has much bigger vacuum brazing ovens uh, to, to develop our process with and, and actually use their equipment. So that was the, the main goal, kind of the main breakthrough, our quote unquote secret sauce um, that we have patents pending for and, and probably many more to come um, was actually how do you get this uh, reactive uh, metal inside this hermetically sealed device uh, at scale and cost effectively. So that was our, our primary goal that we, we set out to do. And uh, as far as we know, uh, we have done that uh, verified by uh, some of our manufacturing partners that, that agreed, yes, this, this is the way that you should do this and, and we can do it. So um, that was exciting to, to work with them on. So then success coming out of that program at the lab is you have a functioning proof of concept that you can show people in the sales cycle. You have provisional patents for, you know, obviously for how that, how this process works at scale and you can leverage all of that to go out and raise funds and start to take the next step, steps. Right. Exactly. Yep. Yeah. I think, Going into the program uh, at Argonne, uh, we had uh, grand visions and all kinds of different things that would have qualified for for success. But I think at the end of the day, we uh, the path that we chose for this development plan, um, yeah, basically we it gave us about a year and a half to work on this process, figure out the materials, physical design, um, and things like that. And yes, we we have a physical proof of concept, basically, that we manufactured. Uh, and then we developed the process and, and provisionally patented around that. And so that was kind of our, our success throughout the program. So now this next question is going to be a super naive one, because I'm not sure I fully understand the places or ways that, that you would leverage a technology like this. But there's there's a core question in here somewhere around, like, how do the economics of this work, right? Because if I'm trying to produce energy in this way, I'm trying to balance what's the cost of energy via some other method versus the cost of buying this product, right? And then at some point you reach a payback period, right? So talk a little bit about that. How much of people using a, a solution like this, is it about that just basic economic cost of this energy versus energy from another source versus 
maybe in the applications, I'm trying to think of how you could apply this in oil and gas, right? Maybe in the applications where you're using this, it's the only way to get energy because you're out in the middle of nowhere and there's, you know, it's not like you can just pull from an outlet or something like that. Yep. And that's, you You hit the nail on the head. Um, the, the easiest place to start is where the availability of energy is uh, drastically reduced or, or non-existent. So the ideal case for this and kind of the biggest selling point um, is actually not cost, not efficiency, but it is robustness and reliability. So in the oil and gas industry, they currently use thermoelectric power generation for things like cathodic protection, uh, powering pumps, sensors, uh, lights, uh, all kinds of different equipment where basically they siphon off um, a combustible material, most likely uh, natural gas, burn it, it heats up um, a thermoelectric module, um, which I won't go into that here, but you can look up how how they work, and that uh, generates uh, electricity from heat with no moving parts. So basically a, a very similar model or technology to what we're doing, except that core technology is incredibly expensive, incredibly inefficient, uh, which as I just mentioned, those are the two things that they don't really care about. One of the big things that they care about is robustness and reliability. And thermoelectrics have a tendency to burn out um, at unexpected times. We've talked with uh, customers and sales partners that have had devices last as long as 10 years, and then they've had ones that have burned out uh, in under a month. And these things are in the middle of nowhere, and their sole job is to work nonstop for power generation. So basically what we have uh, come up with is we're partnering with a sales and distribution team that actually used to sell these thermoelectric boxes to the oil and gas industry and basically working with them to develop a new product that will just simply be a one-to-one swap, um, just a straight out swap of their current product uh, so that if you're the customer in the oil and gas industry, what you see is the same sales guy that sold you the same technology that you're used to two months ago, but here he's rolling up to the oil field in in the back of his pickup is a box that looks very similar to what you're used to buying. But in fact, it actually has a different core technology on the inside that is less expensive, more efficient, and most importantly, uh, drastically more reliable because thermionics do not suffer from uh, burnout due to temperature fluctuations as thermoelectrics do. So we, we believe because of all those factors. We have a a very good go-to-market strategy with this technology. Another example of kind of a use case, uh, like I said, with the nonstop or reliable power generation, the easiest one to think about is kind of like a backup generator um, or something like that for, for homes. There's a big influx in development for for natural gas turbines for uh, power generation or backup generation for business or homes or hospitals or whatnot. One of the interesting things about them is that uh, sometimes they're actually so loud uh, that they violate city ordinances on noise, um, so you can't actually place them where you want to. Our device, even though it would be less uh, less efficient, um, would cost about the same or less, but would be silent um, and would be ready to go whenever you need to turn it on. 
Another big uh, application is actually for remote power generation for the telecom industry. So remote cell towers and cell towers in general have to have a 99.925% uptime, which means they can only go down around a half an hour every month. Uh, Right now in remote locations, they're either powered via diesel generators or natural gas generators that need maintenance every 36 to 60 days. And when they maintain them, they actually have to cut the power to it and the cell tower goes down for hours, if not days at a time. Uh, And so then they violate their service life agreements. There are a lot of niche applications like that where we can kind of come in. Again, we don't have to hit amazing efficiency marks right off the bat. And the economic points are much easier to hit from our manufacturing process. And then as we scale up, get into those early markets, then we can worry about, okay, how does this uh, look cost-effective wise techno-economics of using concentrated solar and doing a 100 megawatt uh, concentrated solar thermionic plant or something like that. Uh, So we're not going to worry about those uh, very strict economic factors until much later down the road, um, because we have a lot of potential entry markets where we can hit those pain points uh, very early on without too much uh, design changes on our end. How did you find and get partnered with that sales and distribution team that you're working with? Uh, They contacted us. We have only ever had inbound interest because this problem is so large and such a big pain point for like the past 30 years. They actually contacted me through just my LinkedIn profile asking if our technology could be a one-to-one swap of the the incumbent technology. We've been contacted by giants like NG and Repsol. That's $100 billion worth of natural gas company right there that are specifically have an eye out for thermionics, thermophotovoltaics, thermoelectric advances in those technologies, uh, heat to power, no moving parts things. So we get contacted uh, either through my LinkedIn or our websites from prospective either customers or partners uh, about once a month, uh, maybe even more frequently than that. Most of the questions are, hey, when is this ready? When can I just buy this off of Amazon? And we say, hold on, give us a little bit. Uh, We're we're scaling up right now. So uh, like I said, we've only ever had inbound interest, um, which which bodes well for when we actually do hire a business development person and and work on our own uh, marketing and sales uh, for, for the technology ourselves. Got it. This episode is brought to you by Full Stack PEO. Most founders start companies because they figured out a better way to solve a problem or serve a need, not because they love tracking payroll, filling out compliance forms, and explaining employee benefits packages. And yet, all that stuff still has to be done. That's why there's Full Stack PEO. Full Stack PEO specializes in turnkey HR for emerging companies, not just those core services, but advice and expertise that help founders maximize employee potential. Curious? Find out more at fullstackpeo.com. All right, let's switch gears. Uh, When you think about competitors in the space, who or what comes to mind? Yeah, of course. Um, obviously, um, after that whole about 10-minute spiel there, our yep. b- biggest competitor um, is kind of the incumbent uh, technology, the thermoelectrics. That's what we're trying to hit and target right now. There are other competitors, both in the core technology itself. We are one of three thermionic energy converter companies that are in operation right now. So there is another company called Spark Thermionics. 
They were actually got their start through uh, the same program that I got in uh, for Argon, except their program was out at Lawrence Berkeley Lab uh, out in California. And then another company that is working on this is called Modern Electron. They've uh, raised quite a bit of money through some of their uh, their high profile connections doing thermionic uh, energy conversion as well. So we are we're not the only ones in this space uh, for the core thermionic technology, but because of our simple go-to-market strategy and manufacturing plan, we think we'll be probably the first to, to get to market. And again, once we get to market, our main competitor is actually thermoelectrics, which we stand up pretty well against. As we get to any larger power scales or different use cases, our main competitors are going to be uh, Sterling engines, natural gas generators, or diesel generators. And then we really have to start working on the unit economics and the efficiency to, to kind of compete on, on some of those spaces. But those are the core core technologies that we are basically mainly competing with. Um, not to say that the manufacturers of those uh, core technologies aren't interested uh, in not being a competitor, but being a partner. Um, we recently, through a manufacturing expo day, got some interest from Cummins because they're trying to expand their power generation capabilities, even though they're one of the larger diesel generator uh, manufacturers in the world. So there's definitely a lot of niche places where we can fit in so that if there is a large uh, market incumbent like CAT or Cummins or something like that, maybe we don't try and compete with them directly, but actually try and partner with them. Um, And so then our true competitors are either on uh, similar power generation technologies or actually uh, identical thermionic uh, competing companies, which are, uh, again, two other startups right now. So you remember... The disclaimer before we started where I said I'm I'm potentially going to ask you a question that you probably don't want to answer and you're allowed to say pass. Yes. Here's one of those questions. Like, I, I have to believe at, at the space that you're playing in with the competitors that you just rattled off what, at scale, right? The competitors at scale that you just rattled off, GE, Cummins, CAT, like... How long do you remain an independent entity before this just gets acquired and pulled into one of those larger companies and commercialized there? That is a, a great question. A lot of uh, our projections are not very long, <laughs> um, is the answer. Actually, Schlumberger Limited uh, is one of the most prolific acquirers of startup companies in the oil and gas space and power generation space. Actually, in 2016, they led a $23.5 million Series C round in a thermoelectric company to develop thermoelectrics for for oil and gas power generation uh, even further. So yes, we we don't want to, again, be overconfident or or anything like that or, or put ourselves out there. There, but we believe that we'll get ex, uh, get some uh, pretty significant attention from the big players, GE Oil and Gas, uh, Schlumberger, things like that, within probably the first couple of years in being into the market. Which the going rate of uh, of acquisition in the oil and gas company uh, space is like 12x EBITDA um, yields a fairly good return rate for our in, uh, seed round investors, which uh, obviously they want to hear. Right. That man, that's fantastic. The the spark in the electron modern electron modern electron. Thanks. Are they also 
launching in the oil and gas space or are they launching in different verticals? So they've got different verticals. They're both pursuing different variants of the core technology. Spark Thermionics is doing, uh, trying to take advantage of the advent of like men's manufacturing and silicon etching and things like that for uh, actually nano-based devices. Their, their technology is very tiny for uh, energy harvesting, some very small power generation for sensors on the order of milliwatts and things like that. Um, actually, all of their fun Funding has come for uh, for DoD applications, so sensors on on hypersonic vehicles or engines and things like that. So that's kind of where I think their their space is. And then Modern Electron, one of our other um, competitors, one of their their big reason uh, they have raised so much money um, was they are going after actually the combined heat and power and like topping cycle market, which goes for a very uh, good uh, Silicon Valley investor pitch. When you think about even at 10% efficiency, um, a 10% efficiency increase of every gas turbine generation in the world, well, that's like $120 billion right there. I think that's kind of the mar- uh, the market vertical that they're looking at as their space. Um, and we would like to get to those ideas and, and that concept as well. Um, we just think that the, the remote power for the oil and gas is a much lower hanging fruit. And again, we've, we've gotten a lot of inbound interest for that specific application. Um, so even though they are direct uh, competitors in, in core technology, the thermionics, we're all kind of going after our own little um, subsections of the potential markets. Yeah. Which is super interesting that that you would all look at the those markets in such a different way, right? Yeah. In in terms of where to start, what drove you? It, was it just the inbound leads that drove you to oil and gas, or was there something else there that? Uh, I mean, you also said kind of low hanging fruit. Was it low hanging fruit because of the technology need, or just because you already had the contacts reaching out to you there? Um, actually, yes, both. How we originally got our start and and got to where um, where we are uh, was again I learned about all of this uh, in my uh, master's degree at Purdue in nuclear engineering. We were specifically designing all of these for for actually nuclear applications, and and that's uh, where if you look up my uh, Forbes 30 under 30 profile for 2018, it talks about using radioactive waste or spent nuclear fuel for power generation. So we were talking pretty heavily with NASA and the Navy and got um, a lot of interest with them for nuclear power development. Um, Going back to the roots of the core technology, again, it was uh, used in nuclear reactors in space. We very quickly found out that that development timeline is on the 20 to 50 years, and we would probably have to raise um, at least $100 million to be um, competitive there. Kind of uh, via uh, serendipity, um, right around that time, we started getting inbound interest from the oil and gas industry that they were uh, perfectly fine with 5 to 10% conversion efficient. And the deep pockets of oil and gas didn't really mean uh, cost was an immediate uh, prohibitive factor. Um, and so when our first people asked us if we could make uh, like a one watt device, um, a simple thing the size of a quarter, we were said, yeah, that's, that's something that we could look into and do. And they said, okay, well, what if we wanted 100 kilowatts? Um, and we said, oh, I don't know about that. And they said, okay, that's fine. We'll just take 100,000 one-watt devices and string them together. 
can we have a hundred thousand devices? Uh, to which where we said, uh, no, we're going to have to work on that. Um, and so that's kind of where our, our market need slash pivot came from, um, about, a little over a year ago when we were uh, most primarily focused on nuclear stuff and just the, the like I said, the low-hanging fruit, the ease of the technology to solve these problems in the oil and gas industry with very little change to our core ideas uh, at a much expedited uh, timeline worth of development and, and revenue generation. Uh, it was kind of a no-brainer to, to make that switch. That's awesome. Switch gears for me a little bit. I want to because there's an obvious answer to this question if if this takes into account the trajectory of the company overall, but I'm I'm more interested in you personally. So a little introspection on this one. What's been your biggest challenge that you face to date going down this path since you guys originally came up with the idea and said, hey, we're going to go into the lab and do this? And your answer can't be figuring out the you know manufacturing process and the six months that it took to do that. I already know that was hard. So like, just you personally, what, what's been either the, the biggest pain point thing you've had to learn, obstacle you've had to overcome going down the, the path of launching this company? Yeah, of, of course. And that uh, that is actually a pretty easy answer. Um, uh, explaining it to people. <laughs> we have had all kinds of varied... Yeah, just all kinds of varied interactions with either investors or customers. Actually, one of our, uh, even very early on, we won second place at the Purdue Burton Morgan business plan competition uh, when I was an undergrad. Uh, and one of the judges we found out later on was a Siemens Energy Technology Scout. And we found out that the reason we got second place was because she derailed us from getting first place because her job was to keep an eye out for new, exciting, different technologies. And because she'd never heard of this, she just outright did not believe it was even physically possible. And so during the judging session, she told everyone that, no, this is not possible. This is not a real thing. Uh, meanwhile, ever, all the other judges thought to just just simply Google it and realize that it was an actual thing, which is why we still got to be uh, second place. But yes, it's definitely been conveying not only the technology, but the value proposition. I'm actually surprised you have not asked the question of the, like, why hasn't this been done before um, type of thing. We get that a whole bunch, uh, mostly skeptics, uh, which is uh, very surprising given, like I said, the track record with with the technology like it's we didn't uh invent the core science we're just changing and inventing the manufacturing process but you'd have uh, no idea how many people just pass it up immediately and think that it's black magic or doesn't exist and it's not a real thing so definitely finding the the key way to explain it in a way that people can understand it easily and really convey it uh, in a in a good value proposition way specifically for investors but uh, also in partners and things like that as well um, definitely conveying the core technology message because we've we've even tried strategies about 
telling people, don't worry, it's just a black box. All you got to do is get it hot and it produces electricity. And then we go over the market and the financials and whatnot. They all get that. But at the end of the day, they want to know how it actually works and what's going on the inside. And then we lose everyone at that point. So uh, we found, uh, I I keep a a running uh, total in my head, the average investor takes about two months uh, to fully grasp the concept um, if they have not actually heard of the technology before. So that's been our our biggest, my personal biggest problem uh, so far. Interesting. I gotta, uh, and I can make an intro if you want. I gotta, I gotta introduce you to Scott Massey if you've not met him. Oh yeah, yeah. I know, I know Scott very well. Um, we, yeah, we've talked a lot. So he is the single like out of I've you know I've done a hundred of these podcasts now. Scott's description of how heliponics works, it like is is the most like articulate break it down for you in such a simple way like description of a technology I think I've ever heard. Like he's so good at that at that piece in particular, right? Of like how, what's inside the black box. Now, arguably, I suspect your black box is a lot more complicated than his. But it, you know he's really good at that. If I if I gave you the challenge, describe what thermionics is for my nine year old. What would you say? Yeah, of course. And um, actually, that's the I was going to say. I have have that uh, that pitch ready to go because uh, that's basically how I've had to start describing it. So at its core, you have two electrodes, two pieces of metal that are separated from each other. You get one so hot that it actually boils off its electrons, just like boiling water on your stove. Those electrons can then hop from one piece of metal to the other one. Now you have more electrons on one side than you do on the other side. And the only way for them to get back is to flow through a load like a light bulb. And it looks like a heat powered DC battery. So all you're using is heat to transfer electrons from one side to the other side. And they literally just hop across. Um, And that's all it is. So good. That was well done. I wish I had an audience applause button for you. That was really good. <laughs> I I totally tracked it. All right. Okay. What do you think is going to be the next big challenge as you go to scale? What's the the next obstacle you think that you and the team need to overcome? And how are and then follow up, how are you preparing for that? Yeah, so the um the biggest thing is going to scale and in the actual manufacturing. Luckily, we have identified a really good manufacturing partner for all of this, uh, and we're working with them, and they're uh, experienced in in manufacturing technologies like this, not this specific one. Um, so we're kind of our plan is to work with them over the next um, couple of months. To real quick, how did you identify them? Did they reach out to you as well, or did you go hunt? them down hunted like crazy um we had to search through dozens of potential manufacturers that could actually work in this space um again one of the big things is you have to hermetically seal um, a metal to a ceramic which is a non-trivial task however there are companies that that do it um and so we had to find the right one that was willing to work with us um basically everything from prototyping and product development making two or three at a time time, all the way up to, hey, we need hundreds a week. Um, And so uh, I think that's actually the kind of the biggest hurdle, the biggest uh, process and step is we're very confident on the first 10, and then even probably the next couple dozen or even hundred. But at some point, we might get to volume levels where we're going to have to work with our contract manufacturer to like build out a second 
production floor and they're going to have to start ordering more equipment to physically meet oh, our capacity wow. and yeah. things like that. So, so that, that's going to be probably the biggest thing. Um, and they're, they're definitely open and excited to working with us, especially since they mostly do high cost, uh, low volume stuff right now, a lot of uh, military and defense things, biomedical stuff. And I think they're kind of scared and excited that at scale or at volume, we very well might be like 80% of their production capacity uh, at, at any given one time for, for one product line. They're excited to work with us, but I think that's going to be the next biggest hurdle. Um, and one of the key things that, again, we've done um, that kind of was never done in the past was instead of designing a device, a thermionic energy converter that we will know will work and it's going to be optimized and awesome, well, if you take that to a manufacturer and they say there's there's no way we could make that, uh, let alone a hundred of them or a hundred thousand of them, then you wasted your time in the first place. So we've been working with them very intimately, going back and forth on different designs um, and actually the processes on how you actually specifically design for scale manufacturing, which is unlike anything that's been done before for the core technology. So that's another unique aspect that we kind of bring to this. So I think that's going to be the biggest hurdle um, and biggest process and project moving forward. And when you went to find that manufacturer, is that starts with Google searching, then you're smiling and dialing. And then once you find a few that claim they can do it, you're just doing site visits to, to visit ferret that out is that yep that is how it was i uh, right. started with started with google searching found a couple um called them there was a lot of a lot of people that had the expertise but didn't work in this kind of size shape unit economic space um so we found a company uh that had all the expertise the tooling the the know-how out in maryland but they braze together and manufacture like three aircraft engines a year that's their bread and butter 10,000 little devices, the smaller than a softball was not what they were prepared to do. Things like that was, yeah, we had to find the right partner. And then it was just calling uh, around. And we knew we found uh, the right place when uh, I started describing the technology. And our partner, a manufacturing partner said, oh, is that the thing with cesium on the inside? Uh, which to my uh, chagrin, I said, uh, yes, how do you know about that? Um, and they had actually, uh, in the much distant past, been contacted about producing thermionics before and had actually done a lot of legwork on design uh, and seeing out, figuring out what type of materials they would have to work with years ago, uh, which was uh, pretty awesome. Uh, and then luckily for us, uh, that project uh, never went anywhere because it didn't have any government funding. Uh, that was kind of where we realized that we hit the hit the nail on the head. So Ian, just so then I think we probably getting close to time, get close to wrapping up. Uh, what are the immediate next steps for you and the team? Yeah, the um, the biggest next step is uh, all the paperwork that uh, goes along with uh, actually uh, taking money from people. Um, <laughs> there's way more than I ever thought there would be. So um, we're currently working on our uh, LLC to C-Corp conversion, all that stuff, setting up the board and whatnot. Um, so that's the 
uh, immediate next steps. Um, and then uh, once we uh, get actually the cash in the bank, uh, of course, everyone takes like two weeks off for Christmas. Um, so the uh, the biggest thing is uh, at the start of the new year, um, we're going to hit the ground running with uh, working with our manufacturing partners uh, and our actual product development people, um, making sure that we're basically going to start designing and getting ready to manufacture the minimum viable uh, product, our basically demo unit that's going to go into the first power box um, and actually sit out in some kind of dusty field in a uh, uh, oil field uh, someplace kind of as our as our demonstration. Um, and then from there, the goal is to actually start accepting uh, purchase orders on on units like that um, so that we can yeah uh, hit the ground running with f- fulfilling those purchase orders with our manufacturing partners. And then we can uh, work on scaling up from there. And uh, that's our, our goal for uh, about the next uh, six months or so, and we think, given the the success and reliability of our manufacturing partners, we're going to hit small production volume by by the end of 2020, um, and then start looking into. Um, Actually, other products, other application spaces, and things like that, with a full, full-fledged business development person at the beginning of of twenty twenty one. All right, I lied. You said something in there that sparked another question. So, if one of the big competitive differentiators for this technology over existing technology is durability, how long do you have to leave your proof of concept or MVP box out in a dusty field before you've got enough data that proves that out? Like. Will purchase orders come in when it's been out there for a month or will people need to see it out there for 12 months or what does that need to look like, do you think? You are very good at uh, guessing your own answers to your questions. Yes, uh, one month is what we have been told. One month is a good bar to to set for just showing that it, it works out in the field and then people will have at least uh, some confidence in it. Yeah, we actually uh, obviously asked that question right off the bat, because if they want to see a 10-year validation test, then obviously we can't do anything about that. But yeah, the uh, as I said before, the incumbent technology can fail at like any given time. Uh, they've actually had some of the devices fail in under a month. So if we can show nonstop steady state operation in the, the couple of weeks to month long time frame, and then we'll just keep that one unit like up and running so that as time goes on, we'll have consistent validation for longer timescales, then, then yeah, that's the goal. But one of, like I said before, one of the big things that we get to take advantage of is that the core technology itself has been uh, tested uh, for years at a time uh, when NASA and the Soviet Union were, were developing the technology. They were projecting uh, 20 plus year lifetimes on the actual uh, thermal uh portions of the nuclear reactor. Um, and so we've got uh, a lot of data and history for some of that with thermal cycling. Obviously, we'll have to do all of that own work ourselves, but uh, we're very confident in, um, in at least a couple year lifetime uh, to start off with. And our main goal, uh, I think we're, we're going to target like a seven year lifetime for, for the first product. But in order to, to get the interest and start taking purchase orders, the, the hard answer seems to be around a month. Ian, if folks want to learn more about Atlas Energy Systems or if they want to get a hold of you, what's the best way for them to do that? 
Yeah, they can uh, definitely go to our website, atlasenergysystems.org, uh, O-R-G, not .com. .com is a Spanish boat manufacturer. Um, <laughs> and since we, we bought this domain uh, as poor undergrads for uh, $12, like six years ago, .org was the only one that was open. So um, we have that. And then my email is just simply my name, ian.hamilton at atlasenergysystems.org uh, as well. Um, and I'd be happy to to talk with any interested parties or potential investors. Ian, thank you so much. I really enjoyed it. If you're thinking of launching a SaaS product, startup competitors can provide data on your closest competitors, survey potential users, or provide other product validation services. Learn more at startupcompetitors.com. <laughs>